This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 161 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Adam is not here with me uh, today. He is actually out of the office um, when I'm recording this, so you just get my lovely voice this morning and also in the interview because he didn't uh, come into the interview with me either. So, um, yay, everyone who loves my voice. Sorry, everyone who doesn't. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay, um, today's episode is an interview with Tana French, who... Oh my gosh, if you've listened to this podcast before, we have talked about her because I love Tana Fringe, as does my coworker Emma. We have mentioned her Dublin Murder Squad series multiple times, usually in our mystery and um, suspense episodes. So, yes, I got to interview Tana Fringe. Oh, oh my God. Okay, so uh, yeah, that's that's what today's episode is. This is an interview I did with Tana Fringe. She is delightful and lovely. And um, I hope you guys all really enjoy it. If, you know, you want to uh, get in in touch with us, um, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And our email address is ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. So if you have any comments about this episode, past episodes, comments of any kind feel free to reach out to us on those um channels and we will uh we read everything those come directly to adam and i and we will respond so okay well that's all i got for today um happy monday everybody and i hope you enjoy this episode with tana french on the professional book nerds podcast Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Jill, and today I have with me Tana French, best-selling and award-winning author of the Dublin Murder Squad series, including the most recent title, The Trespasser. Her books have won numerous awards, including the McCavity, Edgar, and the Los Angeles Times Award for Best Mystery Thriller. Tana, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Can I just say that Professional Book Nerds is a great title, and that sounds like just a great job description. Thank you. It is sort of like an unofficial job description for us. (laughs) So um, can you start us off by giving our listeners a brief introduction to The Trespasser? The Trespasser, it's a Dublin Murder Squad novel, so the narrator, Antoinette Conway, is a detective on the Murder Squad, but it is not really going very well for her. She's kind of a harsh, abrasive personality to begin with. She does not play well with others, and she got off on the wrong foot on the squad to start with, and things have kind of spiraled from there, till now it's at the point where she's on the receding end of all kinds of harassment within her own squad, you know, everything from sort of nasty pranks through to downright sabotage. And then she and her partner, Stephen Moran, pick up a case that at first sight kind of looks like a a routine um, lover's kiss. It looks like 
The victim actually had her boyfriend over, there was a fight, he punched her, she hit her head, the end. But as they investigate, they realize that somebody on their own squad really, really wants them to arrest the boyfriend, close the case, and move on. And they have to figure out, is this just lazy policing, go for the easy solution, or is it part of a conspiracy, almost, to get Antoinette off the squad, make her make a huge mistake, and so she'll be booted off, or is there something deeper going on? What inspired sort of the story and the, and the crime that happened in this book? Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I am unlucky. I know a retired detective who, over the last 10 years, he's answered the most ridiculous variety of questions from me. And he'll you know, tell me stories about what it's like to be a detective. So I get not just the, the answers to the questions that I'm asking, but like the answers to the questions I didn't even know to ask, the sense of the atmosphere, the feeling of it. But I rang him up a few years back and I said, you know, how would you go about um, interrogating a suspect in a specific situation? And he gave me a quick demonstration, just using me as the hypothetical suspect just over the phone. And it was a revelation. Like, he switched in the blink of an eye from this lovely, friendly, really nice guy who I'd known for years. He switched into this, like, unstoppable force coming at me. Just, it wasn't even that he was being aggressive. It was just that he was going to get what he wanted out of this conversation and nothing was going to stop him. It was like having a train coming at you. I was, like, I was on the phone to this guy. He was doing me a favor. And yet I was leaning back in my chair. And I started thinking about that, going, well, that skill of turning yourself into that unstoppable force has to be core to being a detective. Like, you spend an awful lot of your time, it's your stock and trade, trying to get information out of people who don't want to give it to you, trying to break down people's resistance and people's own self-interest so that you can get what you want. And I started thinking, what would it be like to be surrounded by people who are all working off that same skill set? And what if it went wrong? What if you found that in your own workplace, the place where you should be in power and you should be safe? If you found that force turned on you from all directions, what would it do to your sense of reality, of your sense within, of yourself within that place? And that's where the idea came from of Antoinette Conway, the detective, being surrounded by a squad that had gone a little bit wrong. I have to say, one of the things I love about your books is that you're very good with red herrings. I was reading The Trespasser, and I was convinced very early on that I knew who had done it, and I was actually kind of mad at you, because I was like, how could you make it so obvious? And then I got to the end, and was totally wrong, <laughs> and was like, now, <laughs> I was like, how could I have ever doubted her? <laughs> like, you're, yeah, you're just very good with, with setting, just writing mysteries and keeping readers guessing, even when they think they have it figured out, which I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I think it kind of, in some ways it makes it easier that I, I almost always write first person. Because then you're, what you write is kind of shaped by what the narrator would see. And that, of course, is shaped by the narrator's sort of needs and biases and their, their, the way they, their take on reality skews what they see of the case. And so if you're writing from that, it's a little bit easier, I think, to give the reader what the narrator sees in ways that make it a little harder for the reader to see the solution. Because obviously the narrator isn't seeing the solution, and if the reader is seeing things through the narrator's eyes, maybe the reader won't either. 
that actually uh, is a good segue into my next question, which is that I, I like how every book sort of centers around a different member of the, the Dublin murder squad. And it's interesting how the crimes that they're investigating always sort of seem to match them in terms of their history and um, just it seems tailored to them. And I'm sure that's not a coincidence. So I have to ask, though, which comes first, the crime or the detective you want to write about? Kind of varies, but those tend to be the first two things I have, because truly that's what it, what's interesting. It's not the case itself; it's that point of intersection where the detective is working about one case that will change his or her whole the course of his or her whole life, basically, where the the, the border between personal and professional breaks down, and this isn't just a case anymore. This is something that cuts to the heart of the detective's identity. That's what I'm interested in, and that's kind of why I switched narrator, because you can't really give the same detective too many of those cases in one lifetime. And it means that sometimes um, one springs out of the other in a way, like if I've got the detective, then the case will spring out of what's core to that detective, what would be important to that detective. But sometimes it's the other way around, like when I had just finished Faithful Place, um, there was a secondary character, Stephen Moran, who I thought would make an interesting narrator. I wanted to see what he was like as a narrator. But the idea that I had for the premise of the next book, which turned out to be Broken Harbor, was very much about people who, who followed the rules, who did everything the way they were supposed to, who did their best to do everything right, and what happens to them when the, the rules basically kick them in the teeth. And that wasn't Stephen. That, that's not who he is. That's not what he's about. And so I could have still made him the narrator, but then he would have been disconnected thematically from the plot of the book. And for me, that makes the book weaker if the narrator and the plot aren't kind of thematically bound up together. Luckily, I had in Faithful Place, I had another character, Scorcher Kennedy, who was very much about (laughs) following the rules and doing everything exactly the way it was supposed to be done in triplicate. And so he was clearly the right narrator for Broken Harbor. And Stephen Warren showed up again later in, place, in The Secret Place. But I I needed to use Scorcher rather than Stephen as the narrator for Broken Harbor because that way the heart of the case and the heart of the narrator are the same thing. That Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so this is, of course, part of a series um, which started with In the Woods. Did you always intend for this to be a series? No, I don't have a plan. I don't even know how I'm intending to finish whatever <laughs> book I'm working on. I figure it out if I go along. I, I really envy those writers who, who outline before they, they write because they at least they know there's a book there. You know what I mean? They, they, they know there's an ending. But I can't work that way. It doesn't work for me. So I just kind of dive in there and, and hope there's a book at the end. But it meant that I definitely wasn't planning on a series. But what happened was I finished In the Woods and I was kind of thinking about, well, what if somebody someday might possibly want a second book. And I was thinking, I love those series that follow one detective through a bunch of cases. I love reading them. But the thing about those is you can't... I'm interested in those crisis moments, what I was saying before, the huge turning points that are going to redefine the detective's life in one way or another. And you just can't do that to the same character every year or two. It, it, life doesn't work that way. It, it just, you know, the character's going to end up in a straitjacket by book three <laughs> in all these huge personal crises. So I figured either I can stick with the same narrator and do the more classic series thing where you follow the more minor ups and downs of the character's life, but then you're kind of st- 
stuck with either the same thematic palette or you're going to disengage the narrator from the plot of the book. Or I could switch narrator. And I like the idea of switching to a narrator that I'd already seen as a secondary character because I'm very interested in the fact that the same events or the same characters can look very different when seen from different perspectives. The fact that we all put our own color on events and on people. We all see them through our own lens and our own, the way we need to see them. And I thought switching character gave me the chance to like explore that a little bit. So we on the podcast have interviewed a lot of writers and they all seem to approach um, the writing process and most importantly, the knowledge of their own books a little bit differently. Some of them you know, see all of the choices that happen in the books and with their characters as, as active choices that they come up with on their own, while others feel that they're sort of channeling in the characters and they're limited to what information the character provides. So with that, in your first book, In the Woods, there is an element of the story that remains unresolved at the end. You don't have to tell, like, I don't want you to spoil anything and without okay. details, it's a very simple <laughs> yes or no question. But as the author, do you know what happened? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I do. Okay. But um, give, give or take, not in exact detail, but yeah, I do. But there is an element of being um, bound or limited by the character and what can go into the book. Because you can't turn the character into a different person at the ending in order to force in knowledge that the character wouldn't have or wouldn't be able to access. Right. So you are stuck with the limitations of the character. No, that... that and what you can put in the book. Yeah, that answers my question. Okay. So, uh, we here at Overdrive are, again, I've mentioned this before, but we're huge fans, and those of us who have read your books really, really love the likeness, and especially the character of Cassie. Um, so where did the inspiration for the likeness come from? Uh, the likeness... Um... <laughs> it started from a conversation in a pub because um, I am Irish and everything basically starts from a conversation. In a pub. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about um, needing your double, and just about every everyone there had been told at some point, "Oh, you know, I know somebody who's the image of you," or "Oh my God, I saw somebody last month who was looked exactly like you." But none of us had ever actually met that person. None of us had ever like been in a room with our our double. And I started thinking about um, what it would be like to meet that person. And then, because, you know, I was thinking about a new book, and it was a, I write mysteries, so you kind of have to dump a body in there. I was thinking, what would it be like to meet your double when they're dead? If, if they're dead, if it's too late. And if the only way to find out about this person is to, in some way, become them. And from there, it kind of spiraled into the likeness where Cassie does in fact, get called to a case where the murder victim is her double. And she has to, and has been using an ID that Cassie used years earlier as an undercover detective. And it turns out that her only way to find out who this person is and how she came to be, you know, dead in the, out in the Irish countryside is to go into her life, to go into cover as her and to in some ways become her. And then the boundaries between their identities start to blur a little bit. But yeah, that's what uh, I always joke that one of my favorite subgenres is murder on an educational campus that involves a close-knit group of suspicious characters. And <laughs> <laughs> <Me too. laughs> 
And I think that's what's so interesting about this one is it's different from your others in that it it really does just take place, the majority of it, in their house and on their college campus. You don't really see the world outside um, of of that group of characters. And I, I personally like that part about it. Um, it it sort of evokes the locked room subgenre of, of crime, mysteries of the past. Oh, yeah, and, and I think gothic as well. Yes. There's definitely an element of like the, the gothic thing where the, the woman with a trouble in her past comes to the strange house full of strange characters and, and all the action is between them. That dynamic is the heart of the book. And I, I like that genre as well. I like that subgenre. And I like... I like books about friendship. I don't think it gets enough of a place in in fiction. Like, you get an awful lot of books about family, you get an awful lot of books about romance, about those dynamics, the dynamics of love and, and, and family. But there aren't as many books as I think there should be about the power and the intensity of the friendship dynamic. And especially at that age, like the characters in the likeness are just post-college, right? They're all post-grads. And at that age, even if you don't have their kind of weird family backgrounds, you're sort of moving away from your original family, but you probably haven't, at least my generation and the, the younger, the generations younger than me, probably haven't started your own family yet. You probably haven't got married and started having kids. So your friends become, in some ways, they fill the place in your life that family does at other stages. They're so important, and friendship at that age is such a powerful, powerful thing, and so intense and so, so defining of who you are. And I don't think that gets enough space in fiction. I really liked writing about it. So to kind of follow up with that, do you ever plan on bringing Cassie back or Rob or writing a book featuring Sam? I actually thought a lot about writing a book featuring Sam. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just the right plot line that matches him hasn't quite presented itself because I don't think he ever got a fair shake in the other books. He's always kind of the, the boring good guy in the corner who never really gets <laughs> to take center stage. I don't I, I genuinely don't know if I'm ever going to bring any past characters back. I would like to. Like, I, I kind of miss them. I, I miss writing them. They were a mm-hmm. lot of fun to write. But again, it kind of depends because I, I, I only want to write the stories that are central to their lives. So mm-hmm. it would have to be that I'd come to a, a, a story that was central to one of their lives and needed that specific character back. So on that subject, do you have a favorite character that you've written? I, okay, it depends on... That's a hard one, I know. Like, like the, the easiest one to write, the one who's most fun to write, is Frank Mackey out of Faithful Place. Because he's he has incredibly clear priorities, only a few things matter to him, and everything else can... Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yes, everything go, else can F off, go, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right, so he has, he has certain things in life that really matter to him, and everything else can basically fuck itself. So there's his daughter, there's his family, there's his city, there's his job, nothing else matters. And it's a lot of fun if you're somebody like most of us who spends a fair amount of time trying to make sure that you do the right thing and that you do right by others and that you balance, you know, your needs with the needs of those around you. It's a lot of fun to write somebody who really doesn't give a damn about any of that, who is absolutely clear on what he cares about and everything else can get lost. So he's the most fun to write, but if if I was going for a pint with one of them, it would definitely be Cassie. Cassie, I think, would be the one who I would want to hang out with. But at, at a really kind of deep level, my favorite's always going to be Rob Ryan from In the Woods, mm-hmm. because that, I mean, it's different. A first book's different. Nobody 
practically nobody even knew I was writing it. I had no idea if anybody except me was ever going to read it. And it was just me, me and Rob, basically, and my computer in a, in a little kind of starving artist flat. And I was extremely broke, and this book was my big kind of throwing, throwing everything into this one book and hoping that it would somehow, somehow go somewhere. So in some ways, he's always going to be my favorite. Are you working on anything right now that you can talk about? Yeah, I'm kind of two-thirds of the way. Oh, God, I hope I'm three-quarters of the way. It's a little bit different this time. It Normally, my narrator's a detective, and um, usually a detective with some kind of damage in their past, a detective with, with some kind of personal thing that they need to work through. But this time, the narrator is not a detective. He's just a young guy who's had a very nice, lucky, happy, peaceful life until one day um, his flat is burglarized and he's pretty badly beaten up. And in the wake of that, when he's absolutely at the lowest point in his life, he's in bad shape, he finds himself in the middle of a murder investigation and he has to figure out like, not only what to do about it, but how he got there in the first place and where he fits in. That sounds really good. All right. Look forward to reading it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> So at the end of all of our episodes, we do something we call the Nerd Nine, which are nine lighthearted, <laughs> don't think too much about them questions, okay? So all right. first up, last book you finished reading. Uh, oh my God, you would think I would know this. Jeez, I have this stack. What on earth is the last book I finished reading? Um... This is ridiculous. My brain is... It's okay. We can come back if you want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah. The Framing of Harry Gleason, which is about um, uh, an actual murder case that happened in Ireland in 1940. Do you have a favorite book of all time? Can I cheat and go the complete works of Shakespeare? No, that's not cheating. (laughs) Do you have a favorite place to read? Favorite place? Yes, favorite place. Like your bed or if you have a really comfy couch. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, probably our, our kitchen. Our kitchen's a good place. What is one place you would like to travel to that you haven't been to yet? Uh, I would like to go. I'd like to go to Russia. I'm a quarter Russian, and I've never been. I've never been there, and I'd like to go see the places where um, that part of my family comes from. I'd like to go see their old houses and their old estates. Do you have a favorite holiday you like to celebrate, like Christmas or Halloween? Oh, I love Christmas. I'm one of those saps who absolutely love everything to do with Christmas. It can drive some people crazy, but I try to keep it <laughs> within manageable limits. Are you a cat person or a dog person? Cat all the way. Dogs, Yay. if you're upset or something, the dog's all like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, I know the world's ending, but I'll try and make it better. The cat's like, the world's not ending, you're fine, get me some food. <laughs> That is a hundred percent accurate. I'm a cat person, so I fully agree with that. Um, do you drink coffee or tea? Oh, both. Lots of both. I'm mainly made of caffeine. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite food? Pizza. Pizza with prosciutto, crudo, parma ham. I would eat that all day and then for breakfast in the morning. And who is one person, dead or alive, that you'd like to have dinner with? Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor of Aquitaine was some woman for one woman. I mean, she went on crusade with, with her husband. She she was a powerhouse. She was about 
three people's worth of determination and guts and cunning as well all rolled into one. I'd love to meet her. That is a really good answer because you're right. She was. That's a good answer. Yeah, she was a lot, <laughs> a lot of women for one woman. Um, so finally, what do you hope readers take away from reading your books? Ooh, books in general or The Trespasser in particular? Um, just, I mean, either, like, all of all of your books or just that one in particular. And just, you know, when people are at the bookstore or the library and they decide to read a ton of French book, what do you hope they kind of take away from that experience? I hope they come away, and I'm, this is going to sound, I used to be an actor, and this is going to sound like a real actor answer, right? But I hope they come away feeling like that character, the narrator, is somebody who they know inside out, intimately, as a best friend, and who feels like a real person to them. And who they've gone on this journey with a character, and they felt like they were beside that character every step of the way. I mean, it was interesting as well. If they come away <laughs> feeling like that, then I feel like I've done my job. That's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Tana. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.